G'day, mate. 40 here. I'm just so stunned. I'm just so bowled over by the Cassidy Hutchinson appearance. I mean, just absolutely stunned. Did, did I talk I about Bob Shelf? against the doorway and saying, he's had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. When we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Mr. Sabloni said something to the effect of, Please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the 6th, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, Sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the... My God! My God! I can't believe this man. He's a madman. Crazy. What kind of Good evening and welcome in? to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we're coming to you all week from Brazil. You may not have noticed, we didn't actually, but Brazil is the last significant country in the Western Hemisphere that has a pro-American government. And in a lot of ways, Brazil isn't that different from the United States. And it's an enormous place, bigger landmass than the continental U.S., huge population, beautiful, rich natural resources. And suddenly, like the United States over the last 15 years, Brazil has found itself dangerously dependent on China. So what exactly are the Chinese government's aims here in Brazil? And why isn't the Biden administration doing anything to stop the Chinese military from establishing a threatening new beachhead in our hemisphere. They seem to be abetting it. What is that exactly? We're investigating all of it for a brand new documentary that we're making now. We'll have it for you soon. But one of the reasons that so few people in the United States noticed that China is colonizing formerly independent countries so close to our shores is that we have, as they used to say, problems of our own here in the United States. The American economy primarily, which is in real trouble right now, and it's not something we can fix with a cleverly crafted bailout, as we've done before. The problem here isn't that a few reckless quants on Wall Street did crazy things with credit default swaps. The problem feels deeper than that. It feels systemic. And you see it in what you buy. Everything, the prices of everything, are shooting beyond reach for a lot of people in the United States. That would include energy, food, durable goods, housing, education, credit. All of it is a lot more expensive than it was just recently. Why? Why has median rent in Manhattan jumped by 25% in a single year? Why has your grocery bill gone up by hundreds of dollars a month? Why can't you afford to fill your car anymore? Those are fair questions. It's not like we've run out of the commodities we need. The United States has a lot of them. It's a continental country. It stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So we've got plenty of room for housing. We've got more than enough oil and gas within our own borders to be completely energy independent with some left over. We've got more fertile farmland than any country on the planet. Food should be cheap. So the problem is definitely not our resources. Our resources in the United States are abundant. The problem is our leaders. 
The things you need are too expensive to buy because politicians created inflation. And they did it for a simple reason. They'd racked up so much debt buying votes and enriching themselves and their families that they had no choice but to weaken the U.S. dollar in order to make the payments on the loans they took out. It's that simple. And then once inflation arrived, ideologues in the Biden administration immediately understood how it could be used. So since you can no longer afford to drive your car, you will have no choice but to accept their green energy scams. And that means their donors who run those scams will get richer and they will get control over the U.S. economy. So everyone wins except you. It's perfect. None of it happened by accident. This is a manufactured disaster. Now, in a normal country, few leaders would dare to pull off something this brazen and destructive. They'd be afraid to. They'd be flirting with revolution. It'd be too risky. And the people who run our country are fully aware of the risks, and they're very worried about it. If you're wondering why they're hyperventilating about January 6th, that's why. They seem afraid because they are afraid. To them, a crowd of angry people at the Capitol looks a lot like a foretaste of things to come. That's exactly why they're so desperate to take your guns away. It's why they're screaming at you about trans rights and systemic racism and the all-encompassing evil of the president of faraway Russia, huh? Why are they talking about them, these things? It seems confusing at first. What does any of that have to do with our actual problems here and improving your life? Well, none of it has anything to do with improving your life, and that's the point. They're hoping that if they keep screaming at you, you'll be too bewildered and too off-balance to notice what is happening to the country around you, much less able to fight back against it. And just to make sure you're too bewildered to act as they scream, they shift the blame from themselves to you. So they're now pronouncing you guilty for the crimes that they committed. You've watched this happen with the economy. First, they told you that inflation wasn't real. You're imagining that, but you weren't. So then they explained that actually inflation is happening, but it's a good thing because you deserve it. You deserve to pay more for the things you buy. Why? Because your expectations were way too high. You pampered first world Karen. You expected to eat meat for dinner and take an annual vacation on commercial airliners that departed on time. What were you thinking? You expected to fill your tank or buy a sheet of plywood for less than 75 bucks. Huh? Talk about out of whack. You expected to be able to send your children to the public schools you pay for with the expectation they might learn something. You thought you could load your car in the Safeway parking lot with groceries you could afford without being shot to death by armed robbers. You imagined you could live in a country that resembled the place you grew up in, where people spoke English and didn't throw trash out the window or smoke fentanyl on the sidewalk. But it turns out, Mr. and Mrs. America, you expected too much, and that's your fault. In Nigeria, all of this is normal. So stop whining and eat your bugs. Bloomberg News actually wrote a column on this. Their recommendation was, if you want to save money, let your dog die. Seriously. They really said that, and they meant it, too. But apparently, you didn't get the message. You love your dog. So now they've gone further than that. Now they're telling you that you cannot have the one thing that most people want more than anything else, the one thing that biological instinct drives all of us to want, and that's children. The most reliable source of meaning and joy in human existence, a family, is now out of reach for the American middle class, and you should accept that is inevitable. In fact, you should embrace it. Our economy can no longer support your family. Sorry. Actually, that's wrong. They're not saying sorry. They wouldn't think of apologizing for that or anything else. What they want to do is force you to reset your unrealistic expectations, and that's what MSNBC did all this weekend.
Watch. What does it cost to have a baby on your body, on your livelihood, and not just you, but your state in this country? Many economists and social scientists are telling us that the economic consequences of abortion restrictions are devastating for both individuals and wider society. According to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, at the national level, state-level abortion restrictions cost $105 billion per year because basically it reduces the labor force participation rate, how many people are in the workforce and drives down earning power. So it turns out many economists and social scientists have concluded that having kids is selfish and way too expensive, and that's your fault. So dial back your expectations of ever having a family. Thanks for telling us, MSNBC and Jolene Kent. Notice that no one on MSNBC ever blames the powerful for where we are. Apparently, the U.S. government had no role in, quote, reducing the labor force participation rate say by shutting down the entire U.S. economy and firing anyone who didn't get their vax or turning cities into war zones or devaluing the U.S. dollar. None of that actually happened. It's not their fault. Wall Street and the Fed are blameless. The problem is you. The problem is that you selfishly want to have children, and children are bad for GDP. All the big corporations now agree on that. They're all now against human reproduction. Watch Jolene Kent explain more. But the other important financial question is if the birthing parent is able to travel and if they work for the right company and are seeking an abortion, more individuals we're seeing are going to need to rely on their employer, right, for that financial support to carry that out. Now, for example, Dick's Sporting Goods is now telling us they're promising $4,000 for any employee or family member on their insurance plan to access an abortion. And there's a long list of companies that are doing the same thing. You've got Levi's and Starbucks. Yelp, JP Morgan, and many others. But the point here is, Katie, is that these benefits are provided because these companies are willing to do it, not just because of their philosophy as a corporation, but because it makes financial sense for them. Dick Sporting Goods will pay you $4,000 to abort your baby. How great is that? How great is Dick Sporting Goods? You were going to have a baby, and now they're giving you four grand not to. And as Jolene Kent just told us, that makes financial sense for corporate America. Well, yes, it does. Thanks, MSNBC. We lost our calculator and couldn't do the math on that. It turns out the companies have done the math, and they'd rather pay female employees $4,000 for every abortion they have. That's cheaper than footing the bill for, say, parental leave or adding new dependents onto the company health care plan. Babies are expensive. It's a lot cheaper to get rid of them, has concluded the HR department at Dick Sporting Goods. But keep in mind, this is a highly progressive movement. When you have to bribe employees not to have their own family, what you're really doing is liberating them. And if you doubt that, here's corporate America's spokesman, Andrew Ross Sorkin of CNBC, with the message once more. The real challenge is going to be for the smaller companies that can't afford to do this uh, and for the employees of those companies that are unable to get access that way. And so there's going to be a tale of two worlds. If you work for a Fortune 500 company in America today, uh, you very well may get this type of health care uh, as a benefit. Smaller companies may not. And I asked the question over the weekend to a lot of executives and CEOs about this. Would you leave the state? Would you leave those states where those trigger laws uh, are in effect? And the answer is no. Um, the view is that this is, dare I say, a cost of doing business. And I was... Uh, 
I have to admit, disappointed that there was no uh, nobody that I spoke to over the weekend who said, you know what, uh, we have a, a, a moral issue about this. Yeah, yeah, it's very disappointing that all companies aren't paying their employees to abort their children. It's a sign of love, really, because when you love someone, your main concern is that they never reproduce, that they never create more human beings just like them. That's a sign of love. So according to Andrew Ross Sorkin, corporations, and this is not ghoulish or creepy, so settle down, choke back your gag reflexes. Corporations in states that outlaw abortions are unethical. The CEOs of those companies are immoral because they're not paying for enough abortion. Andrew Ross Sorkin judges them. You know who he doesn't judge? His friend Janet Yellen. Now, Janet Yellen isn't blameless. She lied to Americans for years about the inflation that she created. She single-handedly destroyed our economy more than any other single American. But that's not a problem for Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's not like she wasn't paying for her employees' abortions. And we're quoting. You know, if you're Janet Yellen, she's in a political job and they wanted to run the economy a little hot. That's what Sorkin said recently. And by running it a little hot, he meant destroy it and make the U.S. dollar worthless. It's just a little mistake. It's not a big deal. It's not immoral. <laughs> Making you poor was a mistake. And don't worry, Janet Yellen has never even considered apologizing for it. No. What she's telling you is now that you're poor, shut up and abort your child because times are tough and you got to get back to work. There's a war on. Do your duty. I believe that eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects um, on the economy and would set women back decades. Yeah, very damaging to the economy, having all those children, all that new life. This is the America that Janet Yellen has created with the help of her friends in the media. So you can't afford to get married or buy a house or have children, much less raise them yourself in a two-parent family on a single income, as every generation of Americans did for hundreds of years in this country. But for you, none of that is possible. Only private equity people, people like Janet Yellen, Andrew Ross Sorkin, can afford normal families now. But for you, things are very different. For you, life is low-paid drone work at some soulless digital company punctuated only by brunch on the weekends and Netflix and white wine at night forever until you die alone with no descendants to remember you. Does the prospect of that fill you with joy or does it make you a little anxious? If it makes you a little anxious, no problem because we have Xanax. Also, we've legalized weed so you can consider yourself liberated. What we just described is not an overstatement. That is the life that millions of college-educated young people in this country are living right now and are facing for the foreseeable future, which is to say forever. But our leaders don't seem concerned in the least about it. They don't detect a spiritual crisis in America or a lack of inherent meaning. Suicide spike, they have no idea why. They don't want to know. They don't even notice a dramatic drop in birth rates in America, which you think they would care about since they run the country. And that's the clearest sign of societal health. If people aren't reproducing, maybe something's wrong. But no, it doesn't bother them. In fact, they're for it. Don't have kids. And if you do, make certain they can't reproduce themselves. Why don't you go ahead and chemically castrate them? That's what they're now telling you. Watch the admiral. Gender affirming care is life saving, medically necessary age-appropriate, and a critical tool for health care providers. As a pediatrician, when it comes to making sure kids are healthy and happy, I know how important care that affirmed someone's true identity can be. 
So you made the mistake of having children, your own family. But there is something you can do. You can make sure you never have grandchildren. You can pump your children full of pharma-derived poison that makes certain they can never reproduce. And you should, because that's life-affirming care. So why are they telling you this? Well, simple. The more atomized and unhappy American society becomes, the easier it is for them to control. Fewer marriages and babies and family-owned homes means more rootless and dissatisfied people. It means an entire nation of desperately unhappy grad students. Sandy Cortez could become the queen of a country like that. So bring it on! More solitude, less human connection, less meaning, fewer babies. That's what they want, obviously. Here's what they don't want. They don't want more Christy Pauls. This weekend, Christy Paul announced that she's quitting her job because family is more important than serving corporate America. Here she is. I just could not be who I needed to be for my family, is what it really came down to. I was tired of being tired, and I told them, look, let's be honest. The work we do is important. The work you do is important wherever you go. Whatever you do every day, it's important work. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to sit in the seat, and I'm going to leave, and the show will go on as it should. But nobody else is going to be my kid's mom. And nobody else is going to be my husband's wife or my parents' children. And I need to be fully, fully present there. Nobody else is going to be your kid's mom? Have you noticed our immigration levels recently? We're bringing people in to be your kid's mom. And by the way, shouldn't you be working for Facebook? Do your duty. That's what we're telling young people. We're telling them we're not going to do a thing to make it easier for you to have your own children or your own family because families are for the rich and the poor. Families are for the tech tycoons in Napa. They've got a ton of kids. And for the Haitians huddled underneath the bridges at the border in South Texas, they've got a ton of kids too. But for you, a middle-class American, sorry, your deepest desires are far beyond reach. Citibank will pay you not to reproduce so you can uh, remain alone in your cube. And if you're not fortunate enough to work at Citibank, Sandy Cortez will step in and for the first time in her life build something. In this case, she'll build government-funded abortion camps on federal land just to make sure you never have to experience the burden of holding your own baby or being unconditionally loved by your own children. You're liberated now. Let's celebrate with brunch. You have to wonder, how long before Democrats sponsor legislation to distribute free cats to young people in the cities, placebos to replace the families they can no longer have? That's coming, along with SSRIs in the water supply, so you don't have to think too much about it. We're finally getting to see what their utopia looks like. Hope you feel better. Well, in addition to preventing life before it begins, there's now a very aggressive effort underway to stop life before it goes on too long and becomes way too expensive. You may have noticed recently the media increasingly pushing the practice of suicide. A number of newspapers, unfortunately including the New York Post, have devoted articles recently to a former Studio 54 owner who's flying to Switzerland to kill himself this week. And that's considered the new frontier in liberation, suicide. And again, much cheaper. The Independent interviewed people praising a 20-year-old Canadian man for his bravery after he sought out, quote, medically assisted dying, suicide because he has intestinal complaints. Should we resist this or should we pretend that this is human liberation at work? Charles Camacy is the author of the book, Losing Our Dignity. We're happy to be joined by him tonight. Charles, thanks so much uh, for coming on. So I think we... Okay, so the, the chat says, I love Tucker. Well, I do love Tucker at times.
but whether I, I love him or hate him, I think many of the criticisms against Tucker, Tucker essentially being hate porn, I think many of the criticisms are accurate. But uh, love him or hate him, he is the most important pundit in America over the past four years, five years. And he grabbed my attention in the fall of 2015 when he wrote a magnificent piece for Politico explaining the rise of, of Donald Trump. And I read this in Politico and I thought, wow, this guy gets it, right? This guy gets it, that, that Donald Trump is going to look out for those Americans who've not had anyone looking out for them. So under Donald Trump, we had a significant decrease in immigration. We had a significant decrease in illegal immigration. We had a significant rise in the wages of the least educated for the first time in America in 50 years. We also avoided foreign entanglements and foreign wars. We renegotiated NAFTA in our best interests. So we renegotiated with, with Canada and Mexico. And I never expected Donald Trump to live up to all of his campaign promises, but I did expect that he would attempt to live up to them in part. And that's exactly what he did. And Tucker Carlson saw this. He saw the reason for the enthusiasm for Trump. And Tucker has not been a Trump apologist. So he famously gets calls from Trump on his cell phone and doesn't even bother to answer. So what Tucker has been is anti-Trump. Anti and uh, Tucker Carlson may very well be the next president of the United States. So he's an important figure it doesn't matter really whether I love him or hate him. All right, stunning revelations on Capitol Hill. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. What a story here. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Did Rudy Giuliani ever suggest that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? He did. Ms. Hutchison, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Ms. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're gonna do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. Liz Cheney left, uh, left us with a, a little bit of a detail at the end about uh, what some witnesses are hearing uh, from those in Trump world that perhaps there's intimidation tactics oh, going God. on. 
How widespread is that, and how is the committee going to discuss that further in, in further hearings? Witness tampering is a federal crime. It's also a crime in the District of Columbia. It's a crime in states across the country. It's very serious. We can't have the rule of law and the justice system if people are attempting to intimidate witnesses and to keep them from telling the truth. So um, the vice chair released uh, two uh, different... Um, well, these revelations just completely changed my mind. Did you realize that, that Trump and his team understood that there was a possibility that the January 6th riots might result in, in violence? Wow. Whoa. This is, this is shocking. Who would have thought that, that a passionate political rally that is equally passionately opposed might result in violence? Next, you're going to tell me that National Football League coaches uh, understand that that there might be violence in the games that they're coaching. Oh, my God. And soon you're going to tell me that, that when people drive away from their home, uh, some of them rationally realize that there's a chance that they might get into an auto accident. Just just absolutely stunning. And based in Red Pill Trump, <laughs> apparently, like... Busted through the the glass and the partition in his Secret Service vehicle to, to seize the wheel. And then when he was prevented, started strangling the Secret Service agent. And, uh, oh, my God, he was tempted. He wanted to go join his people on the march to Capitol Hill. Wow. So, so when he gave that speech on January 6th saying, I will be there with you, he actually meant it. So... I know that uh, Trump didn't live up 100% to everything that he promised, but in many ways, he seems to have lived up to his promises more than any politician of which I'm aware. So I thought when he gave that speech saying that I'll be there with you marching on Capitol Hill, that that was a scam and he had had no no intention of doing that but he really actually wanted to do that so that he was smashing through glass trying to seize the wheel of the of the car and then strangling a social a security agent who wanted to prevent him oh truly truly shocking stuff so the the meta issue that uh, i'm thinking about these days is the psychology of martyrdom and people who have a martyr complex. I recognize martyr complex in myself, and I, I recognize martyr complex with almost everyone on the distant right. So what's behind the psychology of is martyrdom? That this narrative essentially prescribes what one needs to do in order to get significance. And those that sacrifice everything at the behest of these ideological imperatives are elevated to a legendary status. This is why we call them heroes. Yeah, I think this is what drives martyrs complex. People want to be heroes, right? If we could just be heroes just for one day, right? Just for one day. People want to feel significant. I mean, we could hide away in daylight. Right? We, we, could, we could wait out the sun. I mean, we could just go on leading a normal life. I mean, I, I wish we could swim like dolphins. And I know that nothing will keep us together. 
but we can beat them forever and ever because we can be heroes just for one day. Nothing will drive them away, but we can be heroes just for one day. I can remember standing by the wall and the guns shot above our heads and we kissed as though nothing could fall and the shame was on the other side. Oh, we can beat them forever and ever, then we can be heroes just for one day, as uh, David Bowie put it. But yeah, people want to feel significant. And if people don't feel significant, particularly if they're not married, they don't have kids, they're not strongly connected to a community, they're not thriving in a profession or even in a volunteer role, they're not vitally important in anyone's life, then this desperate need to feel important may well send you off to Syria to you know, fight for Christians in Syria or some other full errand. And martyrs. However, not all narratives are created equal. Some narratives appear more worthy of sacrifice than others. And scholars have recently introduced the notion. Right. So Tucker, Tucker Wee's narratives that are particularly compelling. And in my, my experience, the narratives that are most compelling are the, the least true. All right. So let's have a look at the chat. Art Bell says, uh, Sticks and Ham has a video on Andrew Gillum, the biggest political corruption story being ignored by the legacy media. Shock and horror. Whoever knew that Andrew Gillum was a speed freak meth head? Potato chips have gone up 35% from 99 cents to $1.29 for 200 grams. Shocking. What is Nick Fuentes doing to help the jail? January 6th, folks, one and a half years inside, being held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. Well, as long as other political prisoners are enduring the same thing, meaning people, Biden voters, then it's not so bad. But if it's only Trump supporters who get this kind of treatment, then I think that's wrong. Yeah, death count, 51 dead in that truck in San Antonio. It gets 120th the news of the Uvalde school shooting that, what, killed 15 people? So three times as many illegal immigrants die, and it gets 120th the news attention. Look, what happened to the Dennis Prager clips? The spell was broken. You, you saw too much, heard too much, right? Yeah, so the, the spell was broken by, by 2015. But yeah, I still... I would still play some clips up until about 2017. So I guess some, some habits were residual. And I mean, Prager has his gifts. Prager has his moments, right? Everyone has their genre. Dennis Prager is very good at certain things, like boiling things down. So overall, I agree with Paul Gottfried that uh, Dennis Prager is an intellectual vulgarian. But th that vulgarity, sometimes it expresses itself in clarity and, and common sense. Tucker Carlson's writing stuff are A+. Plus. Trump gave us a packed Supreme Court, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg did too, by, by dying. What an alpha move, bros, <laughs> trying to seize the wheel and choke that <laughs> security guard. Trump is the ubermensch. Socrates, trust not a woman when she weeps, for it is her nature to weep when she wants her will. Disavow. Yes, I would, I would give this uh, young 26-year-old beautiful woman a bombshell. I, I would give her a chance. I'd convert her. Yeah, Robert Fripp was originally going to do the score of Apricot Sky. 
Okay, let's get some more. I think this is great, the psychology of martyrdom. Of sacred values to refer to these narratives that have the necessary psychological hook to imbue their adepts with great determination to defend them. Sacred narratives, sacred values include both secular and religious ideas such as Islam, Christianity, ancestral land, democracy, human rights. And what's fascinating is that when people adhere to these narratives, they don't care anymore about the cost or the benefit of their behavior. They care about, they care about what feels right. And what feels right often means extreme aggression against the detractor of one's narrative. Now, to summarize, people transition from wanting significance to joining a powerful social network to which they become fused, which leads them to adhere to sacred narratives or sacred values. And so far, I've only discussed how need, network, and narratives are important driving forces behind suicide terrorism. But that's only half of the story. The other half of the story is that the same ingredient, the power of the three ends, can also be harnessed for peace building and conciliation. In other words, the ingredients that fuel radicalization toward violence and self-sacrifice are the same as those that produce movement toward moderation. How do we know this? Well, it turns out that my colleagues and I have studied whether it's possible to de-radicalize, to rehabilitate terrorists by addressing their three ends. Yeah, people want to feel important and they will go to absurd lengths to do that. They might even live stream for hours every day. <laughs> All right, two, three, five, seven, ten, fifteen, eighteen people. All right, the, the absurd lengths that people will go to, to live stream. So it's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. I could be hitting the sports bar. I could be hitting the gay bathhouse. I could be going to the beach, I could be going for a jog, I could join a gym and go work out, I could go study Torah, all right, all these possibilities, but I'm here with you because this is one of the ways that I feel important. Now, the, the, all those bewildering choices, what do, they, what do they do to us? So I'm reading this terrific book from 2013 by sociologist Leah Greenfield, Mind, Modernity, and Madness, The Impact of Culture on Human Experience. So we, we get bombarded by all these contradictory cultural messages like go gay, go trans, go you know, become a, a predator, don't be a predator, become you know, a feminist, right? We, we live in a world of overwhelming choices, believe in God, be a Christian, be, be Jewish, be Muslim, be secular, be an atheist. Right, and we have so many choices for how we want to lead our life. Like, you know, get a new job, move, get a new spouse, right? join a new community, join a new gym, join a new yoga class, uh, read a new book, watch a new documentary, right? try this new exercise. All right, so it's easy to be overwhelmed by all the choices in front of us, and. We, we often then are just futilely searching for our true self, right? If you don't have a lot of obligations on you, such as if you lead a traditional life, then you, you may very well spend a lot of your time searching for your true self. And this tends to be quite unsatisfactory, right? It tends to be much more unsatisfactory as gratifying. And when it is gratifying, one really feels secure in that gratification, 
right? So we're we're all exposed to the virus of depression. I, I guess I'm thinking one one reason I didn't move to Sydney, Australia a few months ago, and I don't believe I ever explicitly thought this, but I think it's probably underneath my thinking, is that I've got a good thing going now. I'm a happy guy. I'm happy 95% of the time. I have friends, community, everything I need. My, my life is, is comfortable. I have opportunities to be of service. Uh, every, everything's working for me. And if I move, there, there may be various things that I have right now that I'm not even conscious of that I may not have in Sydney and then feel absolutely bereft and lost. So you, you may change jobs. You may change communities. You may change religions. You may change partners. You may change a lot of things and then find yourself absolutely lost because we all have within us the virus for depression because the cultural agent that carries the disease is all around us. And that cultural agent is freedom. The more freedom you have, the more likely you are to go mad. So the more affluent you are, the more likely you are to go mad. The more distant you are from traditional obligations, the more likely you are to go mad. The more distant you are from your family and community and say ethnic group, religious group, the more likely you are to go mad. And, and there are certain places where people are particularly vulnerable to going mad, such as college, right? You rock up to college at age 18, and on the one hand, it looks like a, a sexual cornucopia. On the other hand, all sorts of people are getting their lives ruined through sexual experimentation or blowback against sexual experimentation. People go to college, experiment with drugs, alcohol, all sorts of things, and all the freedom that's available for people when they leave home, go away to college, often make the virus of depression particularly active, and it tends to affect more, more people. So any circumstance that you put yourself in that offers more possibilities, the more likely you are to go crazy. And the more you reconcile with your choices, the more you reconcile with your identity, the more at peace you are with, say, your religious, ethnic, communal, professional, educational identity, the, the more you reconcile with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, with your relations, with your way of life, then the less likely you are to go mad. It's when you're torn between being an Orthodox Jew and being a hedonist that you go crazy. When you're torn between being a secular Jew and converting to Christianity, you go crazy. Right? When you're torn between becoming a doctor or becoming a poet, that's when you go crazy. Right? If you're torn between living in Los Angeles or living in New York, you go crazy. So generally speaking, people become more sane as they age. They become less neurotic. They become more agreeable. They become more conscientious. They become more mentally grounded because people, as they grow older, kind of accept their life kind of narrowing. I remember I moved to Los Angeles at age 27 after six years of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so for me, the world was my oyster, and I was just banging left and right. I, I've never been so promiscuous as, as my first year in Los Angeles. And I wasn't just promiscuous with the ladies. I was promiscuous with the synagogues. I was going to, I was going wild. I'd start Friday night, I'd go to an Orthodox synagogue. And then I'd go to Asia Torah, and then I'd get an invite home to, to someone's, someone's place for Shabbat dinner. 
And then about uh, eight o'clock, I'd bounce from that. I'd drive up to Stephen S. Wise, a reform temple for their Friday night services. And then there'd be, there'd be Israeli dancing after that that would go to 10, 11 o'clock. And then sometimes I'd, I'd sleep there in my car. There was, there was a shower there that, that I could use. Then, then I'd go to services at Stephen S. Wise Saturday morning. Dennis Prager would be there. He'd speak. That'd be awesome. And uh, then I'd hang out with friends, have lunch afterwards, and, and then I'd go back to Asia Torah in the afternoon for Mincha Marif. And then uh, after Shabbos, I'd be off to, to something else. So I was going to reconstruction of synagogues in Malibu and in Pacific Palisades. I was going to reform synagogues in, in Bel Air and Beverly Hills. I was going to conservative synagogues in, in Westwood and in Pico Robertson. I was going to Orthodox synagogues. I was going to Hasidic synagogues. I was going to Torah classes. I was working as, as a background extra on, on movies and TV shows. I was meeting new people, making new friends, going to bed with new people. It, it, was, it was a crazy time, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go back to UCLA and get my degree in economics, and then no, 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 I, that's not good for me. Maybe I'll become an actor and uh, maybe I'll become a model. So I was going out on acting auditions, I had modeling auditions. And then I thought, no, 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 I need to write a book. No, I need to make a documentary. And so I'm just like torn all over the place, back and forth. And so these days, are just I'm just up and down. I'm, I'm euphoric one moment, just uh, down in the doldrums the next moment. Uh, living out of my car for, for months on end, uh, sometimes getting sick and, and sleeping and living out of your car when you're sick is an absolutely miserable experience. So I was just all over the place. And then I settled into a rhythm of blogging, but I was blogging for a living, but I was blogging about the pornography industry, which was completely incompatible with my progression in traditional Judaism. So finally, I... I reconciled those two things by stepping away from blogging on the porn industry in 2007, devoted myself more to Orthodox Judaism, and I started to you know, regain a little bit more of a sense of identity. Then I began training to be an Alexander Technique teacher in January 2009 and developed uh, self-identity as an Alexander Technique teacher. What also uh, shook me up was that uh, my good friend Kathy Seid died of lung cancer in 2007. And so the whole social world that she'd connected me to kind of fell away. Also, at the same time, I realized I could no longer make a living writing. So all those social engagements, which were accounted for most of my social life, pretty much every evening I was out at a L.A. press club event or some you know writer's party or, or something like that, that all fell away. So I had to develop this new identity, kind of start from scratch as an Alexander Technique teacher, and settle into Orthodox Judaism and uh, make, make peace with the Orthodox Jewish community, try to clean up some of the mess that I'd created in my first, first few years in Los Angeles. Right? It's kind of awkward. Right? I've lived in the Orthodox Jewish community in Los Angeles for about 28 years, and it's kind of awkward that there, that there are so many people that I've either slept with or they know that I've slept with their friend or... It's just, it's not really the way that you want to live in, in Orthodox Judaism. And then people have known me for 28 years. They've known the inappropriate things I've said at times, you know, 
inappropriate things I've done, the inappropriate things I've written, the inappropriate videos I've made, the the scandalous articles about me or some uh, TV show that, that they've seen and they thought, oh, that, that's really gross, that's creepy, that, that's weird. So people know me and in the last last 10 years, particularly the last six years, I've, I've managed to reconcile more with an identity of being an Orthodox Jew and, and a writer and a live streamer and an Alexander Technique teacher and someone who just loves to read books. So when you can reconcile to your life and find spaces in there to be of service to other people, that's about the best inoculation against the virus of severe depression. So events that make your identity a challenge or a problem or make you question your identity are events that are very likely to trigger the the virus of depression and madness. Events that undermine your social status, right? Events where you're humiliated, where you realize that you're unwanted, where friendships are not as secure or strong as you thought they were when when relationships and marriages d- don't work out, when you lose a job, when you change profession, these things are going to shake you up. Now, when you're poor, when you've been a victim of some kind of heinous crime, right? when, when you have far fewer choices in life, these things don't tend to trigger severe mental illness. right? So survivors of the Holocaust don't tend to walk around terribly depressed or anxious or, or bipolar, right? Survivors of the Holocaust tended to do pretty well in life, and, and they went through horrible things. So events that trigger our depression are things that would appear to most people absolutely trivial. So a girl that you really like, she's not interested in you, or you've moved to a new environment, so you're no longer the smartest in the group. Now you're just ordinary, right? So you live in one place where you're a big deal in one aspect of your life. You move to another place and you're not a big deal in anything, right? Maybe you don't get into your preferred college, right? Maybe, yeah, someone breaks up with you. Maybe you don't attain a particularly desired position in your workplace. And these are the events that trigger self-examination, that kind of undermine your sense of identity when you start questioning your, say, your religious faith or your political faith or whatever the faith has been that sustained you, and you start questioning that, that has the opportunity to disorient yourself and can very well begin the whole process of mental disintegration. So the triggers themselves are usually not traumatic, and most people would regard them as trivial. Now, these triggering events also tend to be accidental, it just something just happens and you completely have to reevaluate who you are. Now, most of us live our lives peacefully. We carry the virus of depression inside ourselves, but we're really made aware of our vulnerability until our world falls apart. When a spouse leaves, a friendship ends, a job ends, a promotion doesn't come through, right? Then, then suddenly... We're triggered, and this virus of depression within us starts to take over us. So the more 
choice you have about where you live, the more choice you have about what social group you hang out with, the more choice you have with how you spend your money, with how you earn your money, the more likely you are to get depressed, right? The more freedom, the more depression. So this uh, terrific book by Leah Greenfeld talks about one privileged wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant woman. Her father was a distinguished scientist. She too became a scientist and she wrote a story about her depression. And you see that the root of it is in her privileged, prosperous background. All the choices she had for self-creation, the absence of responsibilities and limits and objective difficulties. She had too much. She had too much freedom. Her life was too good, and that's why it turned bad. She moved to California, and California did not pressure girls into curtsying. Everything was wide open in California. Everyone seemed to have one, two, three step-parents. My friend's financial resources were of astonishing proportions. I learned for the first time what a wasp was, that I was one, and that this was a mixed blessing. I never heard the term until I arrived in California, that apparently being a wasp meant being moss-backed, lock-jawed, rigid, humorless, cold, charmless, insipid, less than bright, but otherwise to be envied. seemed very strange. This contributed to a certain social fragmentation. One cluster at my school went to the beach by day and partied by night. They tended to be wasps. The other was more casual and jaded, tended toward intellectual pursuits. I ended up drifting in and out of both worlds, comfortable in each. So if you're drifting in and out of a lot of different worlds, you're much more vulnerable to madness. So... She had many manic episodes, but along with almost everyone who has manic episodes, almost nothing good or that contributed to the world came out of them. So the whole cardinal feature of nationalism is its secularism. So with nationalism comes the dignity of every individual. With nationalism comes popular sovereignty. And this effectively, functionally, tends to make God much less important in people's lives, even defunct. So man becomes the ruler of the universe. So beginning with 16th century England, there emerged a completely new understanding of man as a self-governing and dignified being, someone responsible for and capable of shaping his own destiny. So human life acquires this new and supreme value. So choice, freedom. This is, this is the, the, the thing that's on offer. So death is stripped of a sacred significance that was bestowed on it by Christianity. Man is no longer dust and worm. It's not that death re returns the soul to its maker on whole, but the portals to the eternal life now are accomplishing things in this world. So we have a whole change in the meaning of life and in the meaning of death. So what starts to move men and women and what makes them suffer or feel happy, right, is what they do with their freedom. So you find in Shakespeare... He doesn't question God. And it's not because he accepts God's will. God is altogether absent from Shakespeare. Shakespeare's sonnets are not holy. Right? The world constructed in his work is impersonal. It is ruled by time. Right? It is ruled by natural forces. So we get this exhilarated realization of one's humanity, that one is the captain of one's own ship. Right? This is part of the new secular vision of nationalism. 
And we have this new concept of the human being as an autonomous agent, the author and creator of his own fate. We've got this meaningful, beautiful, complex world. And we, as individuals, develop this godlike, dignified image and identity in which people take great pride. So our identity was something that we as individuals could construct. And the social structure was something that we could shape as well. And we were free to wander from place to place. So we were no longer limited by God's will or by the fact of birth. Right? We acquired the status of citizens on earth. We became travelers in society. We started setting our own destinations. More often than not, we traveled alone. We left behind the families of our origins. We pulled out roots without regret. The whole system of social stratification was opened up to us. The, the impenetrable dividers between the sectors became porous. We were in charge of our own itinerary. And as our social position changed, we didn't know with whom we belonged. We did not know what to expect from life. And we did not know how far we could go in life. So we became the masters of our own life. We were free to create ourselves. We could add to our dignity. We become equal to the best in society. The possibilities were breathtaking. So ambition prior to the 16th century was a dirty word. But beginning in the late 16th century, ambition became a positive word. Right? It became an inner drive. And it came came out of the word passion, right? We were now we were now allowed to live with passion, to have ambitions and feelings that would brook no restraint. So the passion of ambition gave us a direction, gave power to a life, and society was pulling back on giving us direction. So we had excitement, we had hope, we had inspiration. And realizing our ambitions brought tremendous gratification, satisfaction, confidence, pride, and intense joy. But when we didn't achieve our ambitions, we became highly vulnerable to de depression. So ambition was the inner compass that drives people in the modern world. And it's nationalism that gave us the modern world. So ambition drives us to aspire and to achieve. And one did not rest until one found one's proper social place. Now, the defense against threats of a thwarted ambition really boiled down to love. So love, too, was invented in 16th century England, romantic love. Right, very different from the agape conception of love in Christianity. This was love fueled with lust and with passion. And it's probably Shakespeare more than any other individual who encoded this new view of reality in the English language. So in a world of constant change, true love was thought to be unchanging, a, a once-in-a-lifetime passion. It was not fickle. It was uncontrollable. It was free from extraneous compulsion. True love was oblivious to social norms. Love was the ultimate passion. It was the most authentic expression of man's essence. And any social arrangement that contradicted true love was inauthentic, false, wrong, and morally abhorrent. So love made it possible for us to be free. So the rootless modern individual would find one's proper place and define himself in love. 
Love became an identity-forming device. And uh, love, of course, would usually be an obstacle course filled with all sorts of challenges. Love demanded unceasing effort on one's part. Love was never a guaranteed result. Frequently, love just happened to one or one fell into it. One discovers one's true identity. Often by accident, one's life becomes filled with meaning through being touched by love. So what uh, defined one was the recognition of one's love's object, right? The, the person who fulfills you. So this is the, the central theme of Romeo and Juliet. The lovers are star-crossed. They fall in love at first sight. They recognize the finality of their choice, despite the fact that social conventions and identities are assigned by other people and other parties have forbidden them to each other. So this is from this terrific book by Leah Greenfeld, Mind, Modernity, and Madness, The Impact of Culture on Human Experience. So she was born in Russia, lived in Israel for a while, then has been a sociologist in, in the United States. Okay, wonder what Tucker Carlson has to say. Over 100,000 Americans died of drug ODs just last year. But our ruling class ignores this completely. The people who are supposed to be helping are letting it happen. In fact, they're letting drug traffickers go free. No one has covered this more assiduously than our Bill Malugin. He's been following one extraordinary case in the state of California, which he has for us tonight. Hey, Bill. Hey, Tucker, that's right. In a stunning turn of events here in California, two men who were arrested with enough fentanyl to kill millions of people were both released from custody just hours after their arrest. The Tulare County Sheriff's Office recovered 150,000 fentanyl pills off two men during a traffic stop on Friday night. It's a potentially life-saving bust worth about $750,000 on the streets. Two men were charged in the bust, 25-year-old Jose Zendejas and 19-year-old Benito Mondragal. But they were both released from Tulare County Jail on their own recognizance as a result of a court order from a judge following a risk assessment. Now, the Tulare County Sheriff is irate about the release of these alleged fentanyl traffickers. He says the so-called risk assessment was done behind the scenes. He was never contacted or notified, and he says California's justice system, uh, justice system is a failure. I could not believe that we had 150,000 fentanyl pills, one of the most dangerous uh, epidemics that is facing our nation today, with people in custody that we may potentially be able to impact the future of this type of drug trafficking organization and or cartels in California and my county, and we let them go. And Tucker, most of that fentanyl is pouring in through the open southern border where there was just a mass casualty human smuggling event. Take a look at this video. San Antonio yesterday afternoon, at least 50 illegal immigrants were found dead in the back of a tractor trailer subjected to the blistering Texas summer heat in a human smuggling attempt gone wrong. One of the deadliest immigration related incidents in recent history. And Tucker, the White House was asked about those deaths today. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded by claiming that the border is closed. We'll send it back to you. Grotesque. No one has covered this better than you have. Bill Mugin, thank you. Thanks.
So one of the many reasons we came to Brazil this week is to take a closer look at China's effort to control Brazil and its economy. Roughly 70% of China's global infrastructure investments in Brazil have centered on its energy sector. Once you control a country's energy, you control that country. Increasingly, China has been doing the same thing in our country, in the United States, and the Biden administration has been encouraging it. It's been encouraging China to funnel money towards so-called renewable energy sources. Now, they call this the Green New Deal, but in effect, what the Biden administration is pushing is dependence on China, total dependence on Chinese-made solar panels and batteries, Chinese control of the United States. Selena Zito is a journalist who has looked carefully into this story. And okay, thanks, Tucker. Uh, Jared Taylor's right-hand man is dead at age 29. Martin Rojas right, used pen names like Chris Roberts, Hubert Collins, Gilbert Cavanaugh, Nathan Doyle, and Benjamin Villaruel. So he wrote for Countercurrents, V-Dare, and Alternative Right, and he worked for Jared Taylor. So the cause of death is unknown. So he was half Hispanic. He had a Chilean immigrant father and an American mother. He was doxxed by Atlanta Antifa. He explained, we are exposing Rojas because his propaganda has a body count. He has helped fuel white nationalists and identitarian movements whose conspiracy theories of white replacement predictably lead to attacks and murder. Rojas will probably continue to spread his pompous racist propaganda, but at least he will no longer have the cover of anonymity. So don't know if this doxing may have led to this death. So Rod Dreyer is uh, writing about the post-Christian family or American conservative. So the woman in the rear of this photo is a surrogate for the gay couple at the front. So this is a detail of their maternity shoot, which they proudly put on social media. So normalizing homosexuality, Rodriguez says, is profoundly anti-biblical, profoundly anti-traditional Judaism as well. We have all these scriptural citations clearly damning homosexual behavior. The Bible values male-female marriage. But in today's post-Christian West, we have this icon, right? Say maternity sh shoot. Our maternity shoot. They said, uh, we did a maternity shoot and it came out great. Surrogacy, gestational surrogate photography. Stunning and brave. This is this is our new world. And we've got one argument here that Rodrea cites that uh, kind of what's the, the key to this new world is anti-monogamy, right? People just being free. So straight couples use surrogacy too. It ought to be outlawed as an abomination, says Rodrea. So if what you see in that iconic image above is a family just as valid and truthful as the natural family, then the Christian order falls apart. So women are turned into brood mares for rich people, where children become lifestyle accessories. 
where there are no mums and dads, only parents, birthing parents. So Mary Harrington is a self-described reactionary feminist. There's some thought-provoking tweets here. Thank goodness we don't have a totalitarian religious ideology complete with public festivals to justify the erasure of women, or we would really be in a handmaid's tale type dystopia. And to all the people losing their minds at this tweet because they think the Holy Feast of Pride is about dignity for same-sex attracted people, you're being exploited as stalking horses for an ideology that uh, doesn't give a stuff about you. So she writes about the tyranny of queer theory. Then there's uh, a bloke, it's quite interesting, on Twitter, Kangmin Lee. Says, Americanized Christianity has convinced billions of professing Christians that love your enemies means have no enemies. This has resulted in the church becoming apathetic toward and tolerant of unbridled evil, creating passive Christians stuck in inaction and fear. Don't be mistaken that loving your enemies means you'll have no enemies. Enemies of God hate God and God's followers. They will hate you. It's a promise that God gave us in Scripture. This is not a license to be a jerk, but the truth will seem hateful to those who hate the truth. You're embraced and you are championed by evildoers who actively murder babies in the womb, who violently pit races against each other and inject children with hormones and life-altering chemicals after foisting gender confusion onto them. You may not be on the good side. And uh, here's a thought on martyr complex, which I notice among almost everyone on the distant right. As angry people seek out things that will anger them, those who are self-destructive will naturally seek out things that will destroy them. Right, you're saying, what do you haven't played any Mark Shapiro in a long time? Says holiness expresses itself almost exclusively with the exception of the eternally and generally valid moral laws and laws of separation. That is, kashra, separated, all, all sorts of things that we divide ourselves from the non-Jews. How often is the Jew told, you, show, you must not do this or that in the same manner of other peoples, for you are a holy people until the eternal your God. We still hear this today. We're told that the Jewish people have a special role. We can't do that. That's what the non-Jews do. He continues, if, you, if one searches after the reason for most of the ceremonial... So he's talking here about a 19th century reform German rabbi. ...the laws of the Bible, one will find that they were given only because of the existence of pagan peoples and had as their purpose separation from these peoples. Now, that's what he assumes. And he has good authority. That's what the Rambam says. The Rambam, all these things, even things like shotness, it's all to keep us away from the, uh, the, the practices of the pagans because they would do this, the pagan priests would do this. But the, 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 the Torah itself doesn't say this, and the Gemara doesn't say this. This is the Rambam's approach. Uh, there's no reason uh, to be bound to that, that already Rav Shamsha Rav Hirsch and others criticize the Rambam uh, for the way they look at uh, the, the commandments. In fact, uh, Hirsch thinks that uh, this gives uh, strength to the reformers, because if these are reasons for the commandments, this is where you're going to let you, just like whole time. Uh, he says, we must admit, therefore, that these laws would either not have been given at all, or would have been given differently had the Jewish people been the only people in the world and had other people or human beings not existed at all. So he says, since all these ritual laws 
are, are there to keep us away from the non-Jews and their immoralities, had the Jewish people been the only people in the world, um, or had, uh, had they, they been the only people, then these wouldn't have been commanded. There wouldn't have been these commandments, the reasons of which are to keep us away from the non-Jews, because there aren't non-Jews in the world. There is only one reason, he says, for Israel's ceremonial law, and that is the holiness of the Jewish people in relation to other peoples. That is its choice from amongst these other nations. That is the point of this, is to make us a holy people, a special people, in contrast to the other nations. But if the other nations didn't exist, we wouldn't need for this. Uh, then he says, this may be compared with the holiness of the priestly tribe, that is the colonine. The colonine, it's the election from all the tribes of Israel for especially sacred service is the reason for their respective priestly laws. We have all the laws about the colonine because they're separate. But if no special tribe had been chosen, that is, if every tribe could do the, then there would be no priestly law. Okay, I'm kind of curious how Sean Hannity is going to cover the day's events. And welcome to Hannity. And we begin tonight with a Fox News alert. Wow, what a day in the Washington sewer and swamp once again. While you, the American people, you know, the people that actually make this a great country are facing, you know, a deluge of serious problems, you know, like record inflation, record high gas prices, record numbers of illegal immigrants, record homicides in so many of our towns and cities. Well, the swamp creatures on Capitol Hill, they were busy with yet another anti-Trump kangaroo court and show trial where the outcome, as we've been telling you, has been and remains predetermined. It's been that way since day one. Instead of honest hearings on how to protect our institutions, our elected officials, to protect the people's house, the Capitol, instead of ever allowing riots like those that occurred in the summer of 2020 from ever, ever happening again, we we see nothing but blind, never-ending rage, uh, what is a seemingly an obsessive-compulsive cult-like rage against Donald Trump. Never ends. Now, clearly, Trump haters, for them, January 6th is just another excuse to smear Donald Trump, anyone who supports them. This is not about safety and security and securing the Capitol or getting to the truth. This has never been about having a fair and serious hearing and proceeding so we can come up with solutions. Today, we heard more rumors, a ton of hearsay, and wow, a lot of impeached uh, testimony that we'll get to in a second. And this is why it's never, hearsay is never admissible in a real court of law, including this wild claim from a former low-level White House staffer. Watch this. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motion towards his clavicles. What you heard there is an incredibly bizarre hearsay allegation from a person who, according to our sources, was 
was actually prepared. She wanted to work for Donald Trump outside the White House when he wasn't president at Mar-a-Lago. And according to people that I talked to tonight until others advised the former president not to hire her. In other words, according to the Federalist and people I spoke to after January the 6th, she wanted to work for Donald Trump, that bad person she's now testifying against. And now get this, according to NBC, by the way, ABC is reporting it, Fox News is reporting it, NBC's Peter Alexander, we have confirmed it here at Fox, quote, a source close to the Secret Service is telling me both Bobby Engel, the lead agent, and the presidential limousine driver are both prepared to testify under oath, under the threat of perjury, that neither man was ever assaulted uh, and that Mr. Trump, then president, never lunged for the steering wheel. A perfect example of why hearsay is not allowed in a real court of law. Today, the so-called witness also claimed President Trump wanted to get rid of the metal detectors at the January 6th rally and allow armed individuals to attend. Today, President Trump flat out denied this claim and pointed out a simple fact. Zero guns were ever discharged by those that breached the Capitol or in D.C. that day. According to so many so-called journalists and the media mob, it was hyperventilating. Again, oh, we, we got him again this time. Trump-Russia collusion. Oh, we got him. Let's impeach him. Anyway, they said this was a game changer. Wrong again. The January 6th Select Committee wrapped up a stunning public hearing. It was, we should make no mistake, one for the history books and a complete game changer. Only 25 or 26 years old, Cassidy Hutchinson exploded the lies and the myths that the Trump team have been perpetuating for more than a year now. This is an historic day. Our descendants are going to ask us what we know about Cassidy Hutchinson. That's a name that they will know. They're going to ask it, uh, us what this was like to watch this and to listen to this because this is a day that is going to loom very large in American history. One last thing, big picture. Liz Cheney began her final comments by saying that we are in debt to Cassidy Hutchinson. I think America and democracy is in debt to this young woman. Oh, really? Just take her word for it. She wasn't even there. Hearsay witness. Sound familiar? Oh, that was the other impeachment trial. Now, amid all... It's not just America. It's not just democracy that that's in debt to this marvelous young woman. Right? The entire universe should be bowing down to Cassidy Hutchinson. The sun, moon, and stars should be bowing down to Cassidy Hutchinson. All the angels and devils should be bowing down to Cassidy Hutchinson, right? The, the orbit of the, the sun, moon, and stars should, should change to spell out her name, Cassidy Hutchinson, right? It's just, it's a real game changer, total game changer. <laughs> oh, man, I love this book, Mind, Modernity, and Madness. The impact of culture on human experience, because it rings really true to me. When I've had the most freedom and the most choice, I've been the most likely to go unhinged. And when I developed an identity, and the stronger the identity I developed, then the more mentally stable I grew. So 
This is Leah Greenfeld. She talks about the unrivaled importance of love in modern life. And it's true. It's it's like the it's like the the ultimate value, right? Is love. And I think a lot of this has to do we are in an English speaking Christian society, or one that's at least shaped by English speaking Christians. So love is a huge word in English speaking Christianity. And if we were in Israel, a Jewish state, all right, love is not the the number one value. But uh, we've got love delivering sex in a whole new package, right? Love and sex, they, they now get to suffuse our life with meaning that was rendered meaningless by the withdrawal of God, by the bewildering openness of social structures so that you didn't know where to turn. Simply, you know, who am I? How should I then live? Bewildering. Well, love will shine the light. So, as the the English approach to life, with its veneration of nationalism, with the competitiveness that comes with nationalism, with the the growing dignity of every individual, and with the valorization of love, right, all modern societies accepted love as a passion, as the authentic and the sovereign expression of human nature. But only certain societies stressed love's freedom from convention and therefore the freedom of the self, and this primarily Anglo societies. So for the French, love was an essentially a sexual concept and was particularly a man's passion that just takes him over. Now, traditionally, marriage is best, is best made in a dispassionate way, right? In, in traditional societies, marriage is made pragmatically. It's a bourgeois institution, it is rational, it is strictly organized, and it is obedient to social conventions. So one of the fundamental fundamentals of Western civilizations is the rejection of the idea of luck. So luck is understood in Christianity as felicity, as you know, a divine spark, but luck obviously can be good or bad, it's unpredictable. But happiness is purely good, and it can be pursued. Great news, guys. So faith is a gift to which none are entitled. But but uh, ambition is a natural and inalienable right, the ambition to be happy. So happiness, as developed in the 16th century in England, and then suffusing the modern world, really has nothing in common with the phenomena of happiness prior to the 16th century. So people obviously prior to the 16th century knew joy and they knew pleasure, but now happiness is the ultimate end of life. This is new, starting with late 16th century England and transferring over to the Declaration of Independence and the American approach to life where it's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of love, Right, this is our reason for being. Right, this gives us a firm and satisfactory identity. Happiness became the whole purpose of existence. So in an increasingly open, increasingly secular society where you are free to construct your own identity, the bed you sleep in is the bed you make. So good luck can help and bad luck might interfere with your plans. But in the final analysis, you are the architect of your own happiness. 
So you are supposed to choose and then build your own life. So this places tremendous responsibility squarely on your shoulders. But the rewards that you can reap from that are more than worth it. Right? So happiness is supposed to be a lasting joy. It's not just some vaguely vague pleasure. Right? We were supposed to become artists and paint our life. We're supposed to construct our identity. We're supposed to have self-definition, self-expression, self-realization, follow our passions for, for ambition and for love, to express ourselves, to discover ourselves, to realize our authentic and sovereign self. So the 16th century in England gave us the first century of the world as we know it now. It gave us a whole new understanding of love, ambition, happiness, the dignity of man. And it also gave us madness. Right? With the explosion of freedom came an explosion in madness. So perhaps the most striking aspect of literary England in the second half of the 18th century is how many of its best writers became insane. Right? You've heard a lot about the madness of poets, but this really refers to the madness of English language poets. Right? Poets writing in English have tended to go mad. So this remarkable madness has become a badge of the profession. But it's not equally true for poets in other languages. So many psychiatrists say, oh, this madness, this is a manic depressive illness. It's just another expression of genes responsible for extraordinary creativity. It's just too much of, of a good thing. But uh, the answer, says Leo Greenfeld, is the opposite, right? People are writing so passionately because they are mad, because they are so desperate about their lack of identity. So the writing and the poetry is a symptom and an expression of the madness. It's a desperate I am, right? Poets are always talking about who they are. So in the mid-17th century, there was a Frenchman who lived in England for seven years, and he noticed that English farmers were materially far better off than French farmers. But in the midst of this plenty, the farmer is not so happy here as in France. He may be richer, but not happier. So the English of all ranks have a melancholy air. It's part of their national character. The farmers here show very little happiness even when they're drunk, whereas in France, the farmers in several provinces drink nothing but water and yet are as gay as possible. So this is a comment made 40 years before the French Revolution. So from the French point of view, this cheerfulness, which is characteristic of our nation, which seems to the English folly, but is their gloominess really a mark of greater wisdom? If our gaiety makes them sad... They ought not to find it strange if their seriousness makes us laugh. Similarly, he says, had the Jewish people not been chosen from amongst all other nations, had all of mankind been called for the purpose to which Israel was called, there would be no special ceremonial law. But rather, would be a, there, there would be a law for all mankind, a simple, pure, moral law. Okay, so that's his starting point. Then he says, only because so many nations, indeed all men, were so little developed, and because Israel, in accordance with the promise made to our forefathers, had alone been called a holy people, was a ceremonial law necessary. For it was not sufficient for Israel to be given a moral law consisting of pure faith and true conceptions of the one true God. 
it had to receive the ceremonial law in the whole context of other peoples and Israel's relation to them. That is, because of the situation that ancient Israel was in, it needed the ceremonial law to affirm their uniqueness, their separateness, their holiness. Oh, let's go back to Sean But the so-called spy chief of China tells his son that he thinks he's in the clear. Listen to this. Hey, Palace Dad, it's 8.15 um, on uh, Wednesday night. If you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, is going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think you're clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. All right, that was 2018. He's running for president in 2020, and he was asked over and over again and repeated over and over again that he never one time, not once, ever spoke to Hunter Biden about his foreign business dealings at all. You might remember. We have the tape. Take a look. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. And what I will do... Okay, here's just a brief clip from Donald Trump rally on Saturday. President Trump, on behalf of all the MAGA patriots in America, I want to thank you for the historic victory for white life in the Supreme Court yesterday. <laughs> I think she meant right to life. Sorry, victory for white life. Gosh, disavow. Do is the same thing we did in our administration. There will be an absolute wall between personal and private uh, and, and, and the government. Do you stand by your statement that you did not discuss any of your son's overseas business? Yes, I stand by that statement. Now, we even have pictures of Joe and Hunter and all those foreign business partners. Joe met them. Where's that investigation? Joe Biden was straight up lying to our faces. He did it over and over and over again. And it's clear from Hunter's laptop from hell that Joe profited. And why, by the way, is this why Joe doesn't want to lift tariffs on China? Because they have him compromised. Hunter made a fortune. Is this why Joe Biden approved Vladimir Putin's Nord Stream 2 pipeline while simultaneously canceling the Keystone XL pipeline? Uh, because Hunter made a fortune from a Russian oligarch. Uh, the media mob, the Democratic Party, they don't care at one bit. In fact, they don't care really about the corruption, the lying, the dishonesty, or real quid pro quos, or the violence in the summer of 2020, because they can't use it to bash their political opponents. It's that simple. Have you ever asked yourself why there's never been a committee to investigate all of those peaceful riots, 500 and what, 74 of them in the summer of 2020, dozens of dead Americans, thousands of injured police officers, billions in property damage. Uh, where, where's that committee? A federal courthouse attacked every single night for months in Portland. A police precinct in Minnesota burned to the ground. Historic St. John's Church next to the White House lit ablaze. They don't seem to care about any of it. Why? Because it doesn't help them politically. They can't use it to bash Donald Trump one more time for good old fun. The media, D.C. politicians were either silent about those riots or didn't want to anger their left-wing radical base. So they either were silent or they lied to us and said they were mostly peaceful and we know they weren't, or they just outright encouraged it like Kamala Harris. Okay, so 
when I was most free, that's when I was most likely to be mad, bad, and dangerous to know. But when I started living a life that was integrated with other people, right? Vouch nationalism, where people would vouch for me, I would vouch for them, we'd vouch for each other, we'd look, look after each other, we'd have obligations to each other, right? Vouch nationalism, then I became a lot happier. So when we get clarity comes happiness. When we develop a positive relationship with reality, right, we, we get happiness. It wasn't enough just to have the moral law. And then he continues, should all other nations perish from the face of the earth because of a flood and Israel alone remain, or should the rest of mankind accept the... So in Reform Judaism, as opposed to traditional Judaism, there's a lot more freedom, right? So I, I wonder if there's a lot more mental illness in Reform Judaism or in secular Jewish life compared to traditional Jewish life, where there's much less freedom. The more traditional you go in Jewish life, the less freedom faith of the patriarchs and be converted to pure monotheism in that very moment the ceremonial law would cease to have binding force for israel also uh, what do your friends do for you okay so i was bitten by a stingray a month ago and when i was able to like talk about that pain with someone who gave a damn it seemed to reduce the intensity of the pain all right that's what friends do do for you. When something goes good for me and I want to celebrate it, it's so much more meaningful when I, I can talk about it with a friend. So I could go to the most beautiful places on earth. I could go to Sydney, the Sydney Harbor. I could go to Yosemite. I could go to Big Sur. But unless there are people that I can share that experience with, it doesn't have the same resonance. So... If I succeed in something and there's no one that I can share it with, if I'm socially isolated, then it just doesn't have the same emotional valence, bro. But when you have friends, the pain is reduced. And when you have friends, the, the joy is significantly increased. So for me, you can, you can essentially tell the level of my friendships and my social connections by how much energy and joy and happiness I bring to the show. Like when I'm connected with other people, when I'm integrated into the lives of other people, I will come do this show with energy, passion, enthusiasm, joy, happiness, like, yeah. But when it, you, you spot me dragging, if you spot me lagging, if you spot me sad and, and depressed and, and moping and edging into my martyr's complex, which is a virus that, that I carry around with me and can, can come out at, at any time, then I'm, I'm disconnected. But uh, the prospect of seeing friends or coming, coming away from, from spending time with friends, it just, just fills me up. I, I see so many more possibilities in life. Right? So many more options that I, I wasn't thinking about where for investing money, or you know, new things to do or more effective ways to, to do things. I mean, we all walk around you know, with blind spots. I remember I was driving north on, on the Pacific Coast Highway and I pulled into the left lane to pass a car and then I just stayed in the left lane and I was in the un in oncoming traffic lane. I didn't even realize it, but luckily my girlfriend like tapped the dashboards to say, you need to move over. And so that could have killed me. That absolutely could have killed me. I remember came back from Australia 
1982, so I was 16, and I was driving down the street with my mother. She was driving, and I felt something was off, but I didn't have the confidence of my perceptions to say anything. She was driving in the wrong lane. Like, she was driving in, front, in the lane where there's incoming traffic, and so eventually someone starts heading towards her, and she stops and pulls over, and he inquires if she's drunk, and, and she says, no, I'm just back from Australia. But uh, if we'd had a third person in the car, right, that would have been much less likely to happen. So I remember I was I was with a friend and she she was insisting that other people go along with what she wanted. And I was able to say to this friend, no, you need to respect the the choices of these other people. You can't impose on them. You can ask them once, but then you need to stop. I said, stop. And, and she listened to me. And similarly, when negotiating with, with bureaucracy or negotiating with, uh, you know, difficult situations, you know, my, my friend had, had a lot more wisdom. So we would help each other. There are certain situations where I would take charge because my friend's kind of overwhelming desire to, to change people and to, you know, force them to do what she wanted was not serving her, was not serving other people. And my more passive approach would work better. And so I came out of my passivity to to insist on on giving other people room room to breathe. Other times my more passive approach was not as effective and needed the more dynamic approach of my friend. And then I allowed her to lead out because I, I, I needed that. I mean, I converted to Orthodox Judaism, but most of what I've learned about Orthodox Judaism, I, I didn't learn in books, right? There are all these social structures, these rhythms, these codes for behavior that are not written down in, in books. And so I would learn the backstories of people that I was dovening with, right? I, I, I would learn about what was really going on in certain interactions that I was seeing but not really understanding. Like I, I was learning the unwritten rules. You succeed in a job space not primarily based on your understanding of the, of the employee handbook that, that you may be given, but you generally succeed because you connect with other people and you learn the unwritten rules from, from other people. Do your friends pick you up after a colonoscopy? Yes, your friends can pick you up. Now, I don't know, is it necessary to be picked up after a colonoscopy? But I've known a lot of people who didn't have someone to take them to the hospital or to pick them up from the hospital. I went in because I broke my wrist and I walked two and a half miles to a hospital in Century City and then they didn't want to release me, right? They kept me in overnight because I didn't have someone to pick me up and they only very reluctantly released me around noon the next day to a taxi. I didn't have someone to, to pick me up. And I was so bereft, I was so lonely that I ran into a gypsy while waiting in line for pain medication that I never ended up taking. And so I ended up dropping $900 on this gypsy to tell my fortune because I was feeling so alone in the world. This is April of 1998. Yeah, hospitals don't want to let you out unless you got a ride. So I remember I went in for turbinate reduction surgery, and my friend Rabbi Rabs, who I was doing a weekly Torah talk show with, he was there at the hospital. Like he picked me up, he gave me a ride home. I mean, in in almost 
you know, all the all the forms that you fill out at a doctor's office or at, at a new job, they often want an emergency contact, right? N needing to come up with a name and a phone number for an emergency contact can be a very rude part of reality if if you lack that. Do do friend, friends hang out with you outside of synagogue? Sure, they hang out with you inside a synagogue. They dance with you. They sing with you. They they pray next to you. They study Torah with you. They eat with you. They drink with you. They set you up. So one of the great things about Orthodox Judaism is the way it connects you with other people. And so I know many people in the chat say, oh, you're not fully accepted. You're, you're forever the stranger. Well, they asked me to... You know, take their kids to school if they need that. They entrust me with various volunteering uh, responsibilities, which have significance for the community. They're not just like sweeping sweeping the floor. They set me up on dates, not just dates with other converts, but dates, you know, matches, shadukim, with women who, who are born Jewish. I, I remember there's this Israeli guy, he set me up with his ex-wife. Then, then uh, unfortunately, I started talking about my first book that I wrote, History of X, 100 Years of Sex in Film. And uh, I think that was pretty much the, the end of that. My ex-girlfriend called me the other day. Her boyfriend got put in jail for nine months, and now she wants to hang out. She's a hoe and an ex-stripper. I'm so righteous now, though, so I don't know what I would get from her. Yeah, gee, I have no idea what you would get from her. I remember I had a girlfriend... I'm not generally being known as like the most giving. And so she had the flu and she was staying with her parents in Malibu and she wanted me to drive up to Malibu to bring her some soup and crackers. And I said, can't you get someone else to do that? Like there's this party I want to go to tonight and I have to work right now. And, and, and so she called her ex-boyfriend and uh, she never forgot that. She never forgot that I was not there for her when she was sick. And I, I don't think she actually needed the soup and crackers. I think she wanted to see that I was the type of boyfriend who would bring her soup and crackers. And I was not the type of boyfriend who was going to rearrange my day to bring her soup and crackers. I share an office at work with my coworker. That seems like enough socializing because we talk half the day. I broke my wrist at the motocross track, went home, slept, went to my doctor the next day with a bruised wrist. I had a manual car, I had to shift with my left hand. Sent me to get x-rays. Yeah, getting set up with friends is cool. I mean, I've gotten jobs from friends. I've gotten gigs from friends. I've had many wonderful opportunities and uh, invited to parties. Uh, I mean, friends Friends make life so much better. Sean Hannity clip shows him in good form, which is rare. Okay, you're saying 40. Cut it out with all the, the personal meandering. Get back to the Torah. In other, what he's saying is that if you can imagine a time where everyone would disappear, or, and this is the important thing, the rest of society would adopt monotheism, then the ceremonial law is no longer binding. For then the condition for this law, namely Israel's relationship to pagan peoples, would have ceased, and this law would sink into complete insignificance. 
And as Holtheim and others will then explain, we are now living in such an era. We are living in Germany. We're living in Europe where everyone is a monotheist. And in the Arab world, they're also monotheists. He's touching on something here. Even atheists are effectively monotheists because everyone believes in right and wrong. Right? When you tell anyone that's unfair, nobody says there's no such thing as unfairness. When, when you say that's right, that's wrong, that's evil, that's good, nobody ever says there's no such thing as good. Right? People think that history has meaning and a purpose and, and direction and that there's objective good and evil. So practically, virtually everyone lives like a monotheist. Yes. So all these special laws that are designed to keep us separate from the non-Jews are no longer applicable because they are no longer barbarians and they're no longer polytheists. They're not pagans. They're not idolaters. They're monotheists, even though they have a different uh, perspective on it. They're monotheists. And, and if you'd say to them, well, what about the people living in these islands? That, that's not relevant. We don't live among them. The people we live among are monotheists, they're moral people, and therefore we don't need to be separated from them through the ceremonial law. The only okay, so this is the perspective of the more modern forms of Judaism, which are compromises with the tradition. It's a lot harder to get excited and passionate about a compromise. So that's why the most passionate Jews, the most devoted Jews, the Jews who do most things in Jewish life, who devote themselves most to the Jewish people, to the Jewish state, to Jewish learning, all right, tend to be Orthodox Jews. So there is a level of camaraderie and connection and commitment to each other. There is a, a bond in Orthodox Judaism. There is a sense of community, right? And, and with that, that connection with other people, that getting on the same page with other people, that getting into synchronicity with other people, that creating a shared reality with other people creates an energy that's just not easily available elsewhere, right? I think the primary source of energy is other people. So why do we need friends? Because they are the motor for energy, right? It's really hard to be energized if you're not connected with other people. It's really hard to be enthusiastic if you're not connected with other people, right? I like to spend a lot of my spare time reading books, but unless I had the opportunity to talk about those books with other people, I wouldn't have the energy and the drive and the passion and the enthusiasm to wake up at 4 a.m. sometimes to tackle Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, a book written in 1651. But because I have the opportunity to talk about that book with my friends, I have the, the power and the energy to do that. I, I get up in the morning and I do all these challenging things. I, I take a cold shower. I, I do these challenging exercises. I get myself outside to, to go for a walk. I talk to sponsees. I, I get on 12-step phone meetings. I, I do a lot of things that don't come naturally to me in the morning, but I get the energy to do them because I talk about them with other people and with people who find them significant and interesting and we connect on this shared version of reality that we create together. And then from that shared reality comes a bond and with every human bond that you form comes an ethic. That's it. Bye-bye.